seconds flat. Give me up. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Sammy's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh, my God. Hello again, friends, and welcome to mile 164 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast presented by Columbus Running Company and ColumbusRunning.com. Travis here once again alongside Phil. Phil, how you doing, my man? Oh, it's good to see you, Travis. Hey, I enjoyed the the last episode. I missed being on, but man, it was cool to hear uh, Justin's story and you guys share a little bit. That That was a great interview. Thanks so much, Phil. I really enjoyed having Justin on. The feedback has been fantastic. And uh, I know a lot of people connected with his story of finding running when he did, how much running means to him, and uh, perhaps most significantly, what the community of runners means to him. You know, that's what brought you and I together. Yeah, absolutely. This running community. I I, uh, remember, gosh, it's been a lot of years ago now, though, the, the first time that I stumbled into you at, at Lake Summit when we were both out on a run and so uh-huh. many, no, so many runs being, since. Uh, you were being strangely extra friendly. And that was, it was nice to meet a, a friendly face in there and told me to stop by the running shoe store. And I came by a couple of weeks later and you surprisingly actually remembered who I was. And then from there, every time I'd go in, it turned into a way too long discussion of some random esoteric training topic or uh, (laughs) something related to the sport. And here we are, however many years later with this world famous podcast that we got rolling here. Yeah. I enjoyed it, man. (laughs) A a great romance blossomed from that first run. I like that you referred to me as, I believe it was strangely overly friendly. Was that the quote? Because I think that's a fairly accurate assessment of me around other runners. I, I think that is fair because, you know, that parking lot there at Tuxedo is kind of a, a launching place for a lot of folks as they go out on their workouts and, you know, uh, hit the dirt road around there. And usually you get like a nod or, a you know, a wave or what have you. And, you know, you come up to me and ask me about the workout and chat a little bit. And uh, we caught up for probably 10, 15 minutes that first day. So yeah. Um, <laughs> it was great and here we are 164 miles of seconds flat later still That's making right. the magic happen well I, I would like to uh contest a couple of points that you and justin made <laughs> on that show though all right defend your honor i wasn't involved in the, the interview but before you even go phil i just want to just briefly just to put the brakes on you a little bit i am reading uh once again i've been through this book i think twice now this is spin number three through Ryan Holiday. If anyone in the audience is unfamiliar, Ryan Mm -hmm. Holiday is a a modern writer on applications of Stoic philosophy. Uh, He's done some some really good stuff. Uh, The obstacle is the way, stillness is the key. And I am reading once again, ego is the enemy. I, I offer that up as a warning, Phil. Before you try to defend your honor in this ego play you're about to go on, probably something well, about dots. No, it's, but it's more how further diminished it has been between you know 
Justin attacking the greatest Halloween candy that was ever created and you guys beating me up about my love for dots. And then as well, you go on to insult my training methods that, you know, here I am injured and gradually coming back and give me a hard time about my, my approach to training. I don't so even remember I, what I, I said. I got to defend myself a little bit. <laughs> I, 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 you know what, Phil? I don't remember insulting your training methods, but if I did, which I, we have it on tape, so I'm sure I probably did, uh, <laughs> I apologize. Now, I did insult you knowing that you wouldn't watch these races we're about to talk about, and I feel pretty confident with that. How many of these did you watch live, Phil, of the well, races let, we're about to me, discuss? Let me challenge this, because is this implying that you were actually up at 2.15 on, what was it, Saturday morning to watch Valencia? Still. If you had any understanding of my current sleep cycle, <laughs> the disgusting pattern of lack of sleep that I've been on for weeks, uh, you would not doubt that I watched some of Valencia live. I did not oh. catch the beginning. I did tune in, though, for when it mattered, probably around, I was getting close to 4 a.m. Eastern that on That's Sunday fair. morning. This weekend, I, I was... Uh, enjoying a trip on the Polar Express up in Bryson City with my little one and my parents to to get ready for the Christmas spirit. So I did not catch this this live. Well, uh, that's that's a beautiful thing and far more important than watching these live. But you did your due diligence in catching up on them later. We're going to take people through the uh, indoor track opener at Boston University and then the capstone weekend of fall marathoning. And in my opinion, the biggest marathon weekend of the year, when you had the combination of Fukuoka, Valencia, and California International Marathon. So let's break down each. And then Phil, you can share some thoughts on what stood out to you and what this means as we turn the page into 2024 in an Olympic year. So let's kick off with Boston on the notoriously quick BU indoor track in the opening race of NCAA indoor season. Our cross-country national champions kept up the momentum. Parker Valby ran 14.56 as the first collegiate woman ever under 15 minutes. And Harvard's Graham Blanks went 13.03 for a NCAA record as well. That 13.03 also clears the Olympic standard of 13.05, which only three American men now have hit this cycle. Blanks edged Stanford's Kai Robinson, who ran 13.06 and didn't quite hit the standard in his quest for the Australian team, but he was the one who had asked for the Pacers on 13.05 or faster. On the women's race, Valby won over former Greenville Track Club athlete Annie Rodenfels, who posted a personal best of 15.03. What stuck out to you from Boston University? The first thing really is these two cross-country champions carrying, number one, that fitness for an extra week into an indoor season. And number two, the, just the transference of like that kind of fitness to an indoor track. Um, you know, this is usually a time where we think of it's like, you know, these guys shut things down for a couple weeks and then start gearing up for base training leading into you know, the outdoor season. But these are flying times. And, you know, we both know Parker and Graham are you know, tremendous athletes have had great seasons. But just to put down numbers like the, they did is is quite impressive on such a different terrain than they raced just a, you know, a few days ago there in Virginia. 
Yeah, that's a great point, Phil, that two weeks earlier, you think about the type of course that they were running on versus Mm -hmm. an uber fast indoor track to translate that skill, regardless of the distance. Potential benefit here to carrying that fitness, and as you said, not shutting down, going back into a base, is now they, they have the opportunity to not need to race for much of the indoor mm-hmm. season because the marks are hit now. And so right. that, that, they've got their marks for NCAAs. Right. That'll be fascinating to see how the top runners from this past weekend handle indoor season because you could now theoretically shut down to a degree or just move back to a base phase leading into the holidays and then start the cycle again in the new year because it is a bit frightening to think, okay, we're going to carry this all the way through cross, win a national championship, and then just roll right into indoor, outdoor, and then take blanks, for example. He said afterward, I'm targeting making the Olympic team. You could be rolling for another nine months. Right. No, I mean, to me, I think that plan that you mentioned is spot on, that let's go ahead and get these marks to set us up for NCAA indoor. Let's roll it back a little bit, enter more of a base phase, and start training for that longer indoor season, which for, like you said, for Blanks, for for Kai Robinson most likely as well, this is going to be a long 2024. Most likely both of those guys are not shoe-ins, but highly competitive for their respective Olympic teams, which then takes us into – what, July, August or yeah. so? I mean, that's a long, long season. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of a couple of years ago when Abby Steiner from Kentucky ran through nationals in track, NCAA, then USA, then onto the global stage and ran something like 50-some races that season. Yep. Uh, that, that is a lot of wear and tear on the body. That, that'll be a, an interesting point to follow in the coming months. Also of note to me, a few things. One, Northern Arizona's Nico Young won the 3,000 in 737, which is the third fastest in NCAA history, then doubled back and ran a 1322 5K later in the day. That's what, a just like six hours later. Yeah, at the most. And so that's getting buried a little bit by these super fast times that uh, Blanks and Valby, among others, ran. So a stunning performance from Nico Young. I thought the biggest point from the weekend actually was when the performance list came out on, I think that was Thursday or Friday. And I scrolled through the seeded heats of the men's 5,000 and to make the fast heats, uh, I believe 1417 was the cutoff time. And I'm pretty sure there were 227 entrants at 1417 or faster, (laughs) which Uh says something about the depth of U.S. broadly, but also specifically NCAA track right now, just how fast we are. And it led to a discussion in our long run this weekend that keeps coming up on, is it the shoes? Is it the training? Is it the track itself? But in general, I think having those discussions is really good for our our sport and for gaining interest in the sport. Well, I know with our guys here at Furman, we had Dylan Schubert run 13-29. He was in the second heat. And I mean, he has had a fantastic year, finished top, oh, I'm going to blank on this, but like top 25 at nationals at cross, set a program record by 13 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and this meet to me is interesting how it almost has placed itself the past couple of years as the continuation of cross season for these top tier guys to come in and, and put down a fast mark. So every like everybody's excited to come here and excited to 
you know, race on a very fast, fast surface and get a really fast mark. Call me coming off of that, that cross country fitness. Before we move on, kudos to a uh, former guest of the show, our friend Cohen Roberts, making a return to indoor track. It has been a while since he's been on the boards, and uh, he won his heat, actually, at BU in, a, I believe, as a 14-15. So welcome back, Cohen, only going up from there. Next up, Fukuoka, the first of the big marathons of the weekend in Japan. Uh, this is the uh, all-male elite race. It was won by Kenyan Michael Githe who actually ran scholastically in Fukuoka when he was in high school. So an, a neat story there. This is, I believe, his second win there in the past three years. He put up a time of 2.07.08. It was hotly contested. It finishes on the track, and the top three were all in the final straight uh, at the same time. Among them, Sandre Moen of Norway had a fine race, finishing third in 2.07.16. This is at the site where he set his since-broken European record in 2018. So good bounce back for him. And the top Japanese runner was Kiyohi Hosoya, who was fourth in 2.07.23, while a strong time, while under the Olympic standard, that is not going to be fast enough to gain him a spot on the Japanese Olympic team because that third place that is up for grabs through, I believe, March, it's right around the time of the Tokyo Marathon, to steal that spot, a Japanese man has to run 205.50 or faster. So unable to do that at Fukuoka. And then to me, a, a big story was Brett Robinson. He attacked the early pace, hoping to break his own Australian record. He set that record last year at Fukuoka but he faded and came in at 2.08.29 for his second fastest time ever. Phil, thoughts on Fukuoka? Number one, I think, is the, the bounce back of Sandre Mullen. You know, he's coming off of uh, you know a year after a Achilles tendon surgery. Like you said, 2018, he was the European marathon record holder. And I'm questioning now your thoughts on like where do you think he sits in the pack of European marathoners? You Because know, several years ago, he was really on the short list of somebody that can crack the the dominance of the East Africans. You know, he was trained by Renata Canova, uh, you know, very high mileage, high intensity type programming. We hadn't seen much from him in a couple of years, but again, he's coming off of that, that significant surgery. So this was a, a solid mark for him. But with that kind of time, where do you think he's sitting with the European marathoners? It's interesting. Five years ago, in one of the first episodes of this show, we debated Mo versus Moen. Mo Farah and mm -hmm. Sandre Moen uh, looked like the two top European marathoners moving into the 2020 Olympic cycle. Uh, Phil, I got to tell you, I, while it is a really strong effort coming off that injury, I, I got to see it again before I really believe in it. I do yeah. not at this point perceive him as a major threat uh, for Paris next summer. But you said it. He, he was in that Canova program when he had his breakthrough. A lot of miles, a lot of intensity, perhaps too much. Uh, it's hard to mm -hmm. know but because of the injuries that he's had since. Uh, but uh, bigger point on Sandre Moen is I, I'm going to have to dig into what he's doing right now with his training. How much is he tied into the Norwegian style of training and carrying that into a marathon program? I don't know the answer. I don't know what he's mm -hmm. doing specifically day to day, but it'd be interesting to see if he, given where he's from, is 
pulling in some of that Ingebrigtsen style training, but over a longer distance. Yeah. Well, and with this one as well, we'll talk about Valencia in a moment, I'm sure, but I'm almost getting the impression based off the times that were posted in Valencia, whereas Fukuoka historically is one of the great marathons. I mean, there's a ton of history there, but these times of, you know, what, 207, 08 wins it. You know, there's a handful under 210, but then you look at the field at, at Valencia and the number of guys that are under 208 there. Fukuoka is traditionally known as a relatively flat and fast competitive course, but I'm wondering if this is almost getting overshadowed by some of these other marathons. These were strong performances, but nothing, nobody's under 205 here. Historically, if you were to go back to, say, the 70s, this was the World Championship of Marathoning. Mm-hmm. I love these uh, elite only Japanese events though, where the last guy who finished at this was like in the mid two thirties, <laughs> the deeper Japanese marathon in recent years has been Lake Biwa. Uh, that, that is yeah. essentially the fastest of these great Japanese marathons. I do think the timing hurts Fukuoka with the rise of Valencia on the same weekend Location is an interesting factor too, the travel factor. These Japanese marathons, historically, great Japanese field, but also some international flavor. Like a, a lot of Australians, top Australians have traditionally run this race. And, uh, and you look outside of Brett Robinson, most of the top Australian threats went to Valencia, um, mm-hmm. particularly in the women's race. Yeah, maybe among what some consider the second tier now, Valencia, uh, Rotterdam, where Kipton will be in the spring and has a history with, uh, of course, uh, 83 Deke versus Salazar showdown. Maybe they've ascended where Fukuoka hasn't, but that history there, it, it in some degree, it's like the Rose Bowl of running. Ah, that's a great analogy. Yeah, yeah. You know, I will, regardless of who plays, even if it's not in the, the playoff, there is one college football bowl game you can pretty much guarantee I'm going to watch. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be on New Year's Day afternoon, sun setting over the San Gabriel <laughs> Mountains. I'm probably going to watch some of the parade too, just for the pageantry oh. beforehand. Oh. And especially if it's Big Ten versus the Pac-10, 12, or soon to be non-existent, whatever that conference is. Soon to be ACC. Yeah, right? (laughs) That to me, it's just, it's special. And it's got such history to it and and such a great story, even when it's not the biggest race. And and I don't Mm -hmm. get that feeling about, say, you know, when the Fiesta Bowl isn't as relevant, even though it's a big game, I might not be tuning in. But Fukuoka has that history but boy, it sure did not have the times that Valencia had. So let's move no. on to that one, Phil. Uh, speaking of bounce back, she talked about Sandre Moen and his bounce back. How about Worknesh Degefa? She won the women's race in 215.51. That is a top 10 all-time result, and it is in her first marathon in nearly four years as she returned from multiple childbirths, making me feel even worse about myself than I already did. <laughs> And Sisse Lima is the fourth man ever under 202. He set a new course record, 201.48. Down goes Kelvin Kiptum's mark from last year. Uh, when we look deeper in the results, Kenanisa Bakele set a new Masters World Record in fourth at 204.19. And like- now there's one that should give you hope, though, Travis. You may not be having a, a little one anytime soon, but that we know record. of. Yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, 
the the Bekele mark is just generally not to you or I in particular. I, I do find it to be generally somewhat inspiring because he has been erratic at best in mm-hmm. recent marathons and several in a row have not gone the way he would hope and even just trying to get across the line. But he put one together here, 204.19. And then like last year, the number of fast times across the board was remarkable, Phil. We had 28 men under 208 and 40 (laughs) men under 210. I believe that 28 men under 208, uh, that is the most ever breaking a record from Valencia. Uh, mm-hmm. It was previously, that might've been Valencia last year. It was previously a Lake Biwa mark. Uh, plus we had 13 women's national records. And that does not include the fascinating Australian performances in the top 10. I was glued to this because <laughs> we remember here last year, Sinead Diver ran the Aussie record. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of discussion in the Australian running circles that Lisa Whiteman was targeting Diver's mark. And then what happens? Jen Gregson and Izzy Bat Doyle both ran 223, the third and fourth fastest times in national history. So they now firmly enter that Olympic team conversation with Diver as both of them edged out Lisa Whiteman. There's a couple other Aussie women who are going to take shots uh, kind of winter to early spring. That's going to be an interesting debate of who gets those three spots when there's about a half dozen very capable women there and they select in a different format than we do. Whereas we also have about a half dozen women or maybe more who are certainly worthy of the top three spots. Well, they'll go to Orlando and duel it out. The selection process in Australia uh, could be a challenging one, uh, leaving someone at home who is certainly a, a capable runner. Phil Valencia, well, what a day, man. Talking about the selection process, I mean, that disrupts our on the men's side here in the U.S. Scott Bobble got knocked out of the, what is the top 65 world standard? You know, yeah, the, the road to Paris two- rankings. The road to Paris rankings are different than the world rankings. But yes, he was knocked out, okay. so which potentially could freeze out a third runner, uh, the third place finisher at the trials. That Now, yep. There's a lot of racing still to happen, but that is the speculation. Well, because we have what two two slots guaranteed, but then that that third slot, number one, whether the U.S. or I'm going to share my ignorance for a second, but is the U.S. guaranteed a third slot slot for the Olympics, or do we still have to earn that mark? I know there's a lot up in the air in terms of times and placings and how that third slot's determined. Yeah, so um, one of one of two ways to have someone in that top ranking in the road to Paris rankings back to a certain mm-hmm. number. And the second is if we had a, a third person run under the Olympic standard, uh, yep. which very well could happen. Uh, it could happen at the trials. Uh, but what's critical to remember is unlocking that third spot does not necessarily unlock it for the person who runs it. So that is a a weird wrinkle to this whole thing that, for example, Connor Mance, who would be our number one ranked runner right now, what if he were to have a disaster at the trials? Mm -hmm. There's potential that someone else could take a spot that he unlocked in a very complicated system. That'll be interesting to follow over the the winter because 
there are a few chances to hit that time for American runners, but not too many between now and the trials. That's right. The other, you know, you mentioned the depth of the field with those fast times. The first half had a group of 10 go out in 60 minutes, 35 seconds. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the winner should say Lemma, yeah, he said a half, half marathon PR. And almost broke it again the second uh, the second half of the race. So yeah. that's a tremendous progression from him. But what a way to run a race like that! Holy cow! Well, you know who was in that group of ten at sixty thirty five, who staggered home in thirty seventh. Uh, <laughs> Joshua Cheptegei. Joshua Cheptegei. That to me is the headline from Valencia. Despite mm-hmm. all these incredible marks we've discussed, he essentially imploded off that hot halfway pace one of which i'm I'm curious to see i'm curious to see what that means for his future because he's you know the 5k and 10k world record holder and i was excited to see him step up to the distance to to see you know what that kind of track speed could carry over now that he's done the distance and he's learned a little bit let's see what he does next time yeah, I don't think there's any question he'll be back on the track for Paris this summer, not on the road. And yes, I also think there's very little question that he will uh, attempt the marathon again. And as you said, this is one of the all-time greats at 5K and 10K, but also at cross country. And he mm-hmm. was humbled in his marathon debut. And it's a reminder of just how challenging this distance is. It can be a daunting task. And all of us who have had our marathon dreams dashed are in good company with Joshua <laughs> Cheptegei, because if there was ever a guy you thought could translate it from the shorter distances, he would be on that list. Uh, my, my second big one from Valencia, Phil, is, gosh, can we get all the big boys to Valencia and just let it happen? This is where the two-hour mark gets broken in a real race. Mm-hmm. Maybe it, it, I mean, that could even be 2024 because of the four to five months removed from the Olympics, or maybe it's 25, but let's bring back Sese Lima. Let's get Cheptegei another shot. Bring me Kiptum back. Let's get Kipchoge out there. Give me some pacers. Let's go for it. Because th- this feels like the place that it is going to happen. Uh, it seems like the course, the weather conditions are always consistent and solid for a decent event. I'm with you. I would love to see that matchup. And time timeline wise, it works perfect because coming off of you know, whether it's an Olympic cycle or you know, just a previous spring marathon, this should line up for a lot of folks to come back and, and run a really fast time. Before we move on, though, the, the one question I'm curious your take on, and you may not have an answer, but with with Bekele setting that Masters world record, you know, he he's been an Adidas athlete for so long, but now is in you know, this Chinese shoe company i believe it's anta any any impression any thoughts or experience with with what he's what he's racing in my suspicion is that it is a very very close knockoff of either a nike or adidas shoe that's Uh, fair okay yeah yeah that that would be my assumption i don't remember if this is the same chinese brand that sponsored kiptum and then he broke the contract and wore a Nike last year in his uh, race at London, I believe that was. I, but I, I don't. I don't you, you would. You're the shoe dog more than I am, so I'm, I'm not sure that name doesn't. That's why I was asking because you know the the Michaela shoe, the Anta, was one that you know, hadn't been on my radar before, so it didn't sound familiar to what Kipton was was racing in previously. But we'll see. 
Yeah, I have seen it on what what's an interesting uh, endeavor, Phil, is looking at the uh, World Athletics approved shoe list. This is available mm-hmm. online and it includes uh, all the prototypes. So with the prototypes, you'll get the brand, but you won't get the name of the shoe as we will know it when it comes to market, when it shows up, say, at Columbus Running Company or at Run In or, or online or wherever else. It'll have some sort of coded name to it, but you can essentially figure it out based on what models are approved, what you see people wearing on race day. The brand that Bekele is in, I know, has had shoes in this carbon-plated category on the approved prototype list. Yeah, fascinating to see if this is something that grows. My suspicion is they're a long way from being a household name in competition with the other big brands. Yeah. Okay, to wrap up the weekend, 31 men and 15 women went under the Olympic trials standard in the last best shot to make the Orlando Marathon trials. That was at California International Marathon, 26.2 from Folsom to Sacramento. Phil, I believe your course record fell. Well, considering you didn't have a Mark posted from last year, Travis, there. <laughs> that is true. I I was told that there's some sort of memorial or monument around the 30k mark where I veered off into oncoming traffic uh, <laughs> and nearly fell into a coma. Uh, the, uh, the uh, ghost of fallen runners passed. That's right. Uh, in Sacramento, so. Uh, CJ Albertson won the men's race in 2.11.09 off the front, as he likes to do. Uh, your women's winner is 2.29 flat. Among those qualifiers, the 31 men and 15 women, Columbus Running Company's Sakiko Minagawa, who will be our guest on our next episode. She ran a big PR of 235.49. So super excited for Sakiko. She's got a wonderful story to share. She was at the 2020 Atlanta trials, ran significantly faster this time around, and in between has dealt with some very serious long-term injuries. She got on the line for a 5K on Thanksgiving. That was the first race of the year for her. She had uh, been off uh, for many, many months after attempts to get back at it. And boy, did she put out a great one, even splits all the way through and then just hammered home down the stretch. Also want to congratulate our top male finisher there as well. It was about a four minute best uh, from Chris Gutierrez, who ran 219 rep in Columbus running company out in California. Phil, CIM is always fun with the number of people who break this mark and to watch the video of 218-ish for the men (laughs) and 237-ish for the women and just the elation and the heartbreak at at both Mm -hmm. ends of the spectrum. It's remarkable. It was a little bit warmer, a little bit more humid than usual this year as we were in the about the mid-50s at gun time. And so I'm not sure how that impacted how the race played out in the number of qualifiers. And there was, uh, I think there was a, a, the 32nd male runner might've been two seconds off the mark, uh, which is just heartbreaking. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But with the, the change in the, in the window, Houston is no longer your last best shot to get in. CIM was your last best shot and, 
Congratulations to the 46 men and women who have stamped their ticket to Orlando. Phil, would you like to add anything about CIM? The only other result that stood out to me was congrats to Ali Kiefer, who mm-hmm. came in second, ran a oh first marathon since her performance in New York, where she ran a 228 back in 2018. She's had some injury struggles, some other issues over the years. And uh, you know, with that New York result several years ago, it was almost like she was in the conversation to be a potential American contender for a, a world marathon major and then just kind of fell off there for a couple of years. But it was good to see her post. To post a strong mark. No, I I just love the, the the setup of this race. How it's almost like the not necessarily well, it is the last chance qualifier for the Olympic trials. But how many folks go to this race and hop in that two eighteen pack, hop in that two thirty seven pack to to chase that dream to to qualify for the trials? Yeah, it's the pursuit of that dream, not just the accomplishment. That is a, a beautiful thing. I, I want to give. A lot of credit to the folks who who put their neck on the line. You know, Chris is an example. While this, there's a lot of celebrate for Chris with a big PR, but he he chased that 218 goal and he rode it well beyond 30k uh, until he couldn't just couldn't quite hang on. But that's an incredibly admirable feat uh, from these men and women who even were were close to the mark. Who who I know pour so much in while so often having to live normal lives. They, they don't get to mm-hmm. train like professional runners. It's really hard to believe, Phil, that that's been five years since Allie Kiefer had that run at New York. Uh, you know, where does time go? Her, that Sandre Moen that run was, was five Same years thing. ago yeah. as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, you know, I haven't kept track of her recently. I know there were some changes in coaching. She went through uh, Brad Hudson. That's there. several moves. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. I, I, last I knew she was training out of Austin. And I don't actually, it probably has locations, uh, hometowns and the results, but I, I have not kept up with it. I don't know if she's with a group and uh, hopefully we get to, to hear more from her now that she's going to be back at the trials in Orlando on what that journey has been like and mm-hmm. uh, if she's at full health moving forward. So we'll cover Houston in January and then, yeah, the next big, big one, it's only a couple months away around the corner. We're going to Orlando. For the Olympic trials, uh, super excited for that. Well, as a, as a teaser, I, I know they just announced, I guess, within the past few weeks, switching the start time from noon to 10. Any thoughts on how that debate has transpired? Yeah, this is an interesting question, Phil, because I feel strongly both ways. <laughs> sure. One, it, it could be quite warm there. And we do want to create a situation with the best interest of the athletes at the center of that race. I believe that 12 o'clock time being set largely for television, right? So that mm-hmm. we can put it on NBC Sports or whoever carries it. And then that's 9 a.m. West Coast. Frankly, I think people who want to watch the Olympic Trials Marathon are going to watch the Olympic Trials Marathon regardless of the yeah. time. I'm not sure how many casual fans the event draws in. I don't know the numbers, though, from last time. I, I couldn't say it for certain. It was easier to start it later in Atlanta, of course, given the weather conditions there. That was actually a somewhat cold, windy day, if you remember, mm-hmm. in, in Atlanta. Um, and so the time of the race made a lot of sense. But my counter is... 
if we're picking a team for Paris, the conditions in Paris are quite likely to be very warm, as warm as what we would see in Orlando in February or warmer, perhaps more Mm -hmm. humid. You could just argue back against that if we're picking a team for Paris with a course that is going to have a couple pretty big climbs on it, a general roll to the to the course. Why are we running flat loops in Orlando? Uh, so yeah. I, I don't know that there's a great answer. Regardless, competition brings out the best, you know, it, and it might not be the athletes we predict to be there. We'll do predictions at some point. We will inevitably pick this race wrong. It, it might not be those names, but it will produce admirable, exciting results. And we'll send a team to Paris that hopefully we have uh, at least uh, in the women's side once again, like we saw with Molly Seidel last time around, some medal contenders. Well, and from that end, I'm just glad that we have finally decided on a time rather than going back and forth. Yeah. And- Debating what what is ideal versus what's going to get the most viewers versus what's best for the athletes. And uh, we we have a time and now we can start focusing on the stories of who's going to be on the start line. Absolutely. Phil, any last thoughts? I've said that like you're dying. I apologize. That was was dark. (laughs) Last words, Phil. Uh, Any last? Just on the, uh, the fall marathon season in general. To me, the biggest takeaway is just the amount of fast times that are being posted. These times dropping, the performances, sometimes out of folks that are coming back after a significant downturn or that are really just entering the scene. But it also kind of makes you think how much of it's the technology, how much of it is the training, how much of it is you know coming off of these COVID years where we've gone for these athletes that are usually racing from marathon cycle to marathon cycle and having some consistent chunks of time to just put in work. And I, I, we shy away a little bit from talking of this kind of stuff on the show, but you know, how much of it are the factors that we, that we don't know about or don't, don't want to know about. Yeah. Uh, but as well, I think this, this leads to some interesting storylines in the future as you know, Kipchoge, I don't want to say he's in the twilight of his career, but doesn't have that many more, huge performances left but then we have uh kiptom posting a, a two hours 35 seconds a couple weeks ago so say limo posting a huge market at valencia this past weekend so it's almost like the new guard is, is stepping up to continue to move the sport forward yeah my big takeaway is i really 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 hope that kipchoge and kiptom race at the olympics uh, mm-hmm. because you're right, even as Kipchoge moves towards that twilight of his career, he has done amazing things at the Olympics and uh, under very difficult conditions. But this course in Paris might end up being a little bit more challenging than the courses on which he has dominated in the past. So add that to the weather conditions in the competition. That's going to be so much fun. I can hardly <laughs> wait for, you know, I got seven, eight months to wait, but yeah, I don't have anything else going on, so I'll just think about it until then. <laughs> Bill, it's been fun. We'll wrap it there for mile 164. We'll see everybody next time on 165. Hope you have a great week. Enjoy the training, and we'll see you here soon on Seconds Flat. Take care. <laughs>